If you've been with us at all during Eastertide, you know that we're dealing with the theme of joy together as a community, that the recognizing the reality that joy is, in many ways, the quintessential mark of the church, of the people of God. Joy is to be this reality that God gives to the church, that we then bring and bear into the world. And, and we've set this up in some ways by talking about the, the missionary call on the people of God to, to shine the, the light of God, to live the life of resurrection in the world, and that that life will never be lived apart from the joy of the resurrection. So joy is central, integral, and important. But tonight we're going to deal with another, well, we're going to deal with joy, but in light of a reality that is something that all of us know probably all too well, and that is the presence of affliction and trouble and trial in our world. And not just in our world, but also in our lives. Recently, I uh, finished reading Edith Schaefer's book, Labrie, in which she describes the story of her and Francis, her husband's journey to Europe in the late 1940s and then in the 50s and 60s. She wrote the first um, edition of the book in 1963. She wrote a chapter five years later with the second edition. And then in 1991, she's looking back in, in the last chapter of the book, in the, in the newly revised edition or the expanded edition, and reflecting on all that had gone on with this work of her and, and Francis in Switzerland and then throughout Europe and, and really throughout the world in defending the truth of the gospel um, in an age that, that was denying it. And this is what she says in looking back. She says, one chapter cannot possibly cover the afflictions Labrie workers and families have gone through. The illnesses, deaths, accidents, discouragement, disappointments, fears, troubles, struggles, sorrows, and times of crying out to the Lord in prayer. Yes, one must clearly say that there has been a continuity of difficulties, of troubles, of downs as well as ups. So often in history, the excitement of seeing and being a part of God's work is accompanied by afflictions and persecutions and a diversity of true hardships. Now, you have to understand that here's a woman writing as, in a sense, uh, a Christian celebrity, before Christian celebrity was really a big deal, it seems like it is today, but somebody whose ministry had been blessed by God phenomenally beyond her wildest imaginations. This wasn't somebody whose, whose hopes and dreams had kind of ended in a, in a pile of rubble, but... God had gone beyond their hopes and dreams. And here she writes about this, you know, this litany of affliction and trouble and trial. It's not that we need Edith Schaefer's testimony to prove this to us. Um, I know that this church plant began in a lot of afflictions and trials three years ago and continues to be the case in each of our lives, that there are things that we struggle with. We dealt a lot with unhealthy children and babies, and, and we've wrestled with that as a community. There's been... Um, Lots and lots of trials and afflictions in this community, not the least I'm looking at Jeff and his trial with cancer right now. There's a lot going on. And so we know the reality of affliction. You know the reality of affliction. And I wonder what it is for you tonight that's really afflicting you in your heart or in your mind or in your body. Something that's coming at you and maybe it's a sickness, maybe it's an uncertainty, maybe it's a failure, maybe it's and anxiety about the future. We know the reality of these kinds of afflictions. And so the question is, can we really be serious about joy? Can we really be serious about this being a distinctive mark of the church, of the people of God, in the midst of a world full of affliction and trouble and trial? Is joy, is joy really possible? 
So enter Acts 16. Acts 16, Paul and Silas in Philippi. Uh, Paul and Silas on this missionary journey. Paul and Silas giving up their lives to serve the risen Christ and to proclaim his gospel throughout the world. And they go to Philippi and, you know, Paul... This probably isn't one of his finest moments because actually the text says that in his annoyance he cast this demon out of this slave girl. Maybe God's just teaching Paul a lesson about what happens when you act out of annoyance. <laughs> but uh, in his annoyance he says to this slave girl who's kind of following them around and chattering, she's got this kind of divination deal going on which Paul thinks is de- demonic and the text affirms that and he says, you know, be gone in Jesus' name. And so this demon leaves this slave girl the problem is, is that she was a money-making machine. I mean, she brought in the dough for these owners of, of her because she went around and for a fee, she would tell people about the future. And so they're really angry. And so they take Paul and Silas to the magistrates, to the rulers of the city, and they say, these guys are causing, um, they're, they're, they're causing a ruckus in our city. They're not good. They're, in fact, they're proclaiming things that are inconsistent with with the great empire Rome and, and they need to be dealt with harshly and so the magistrates and kind of the, the might that rules in this moment not justice but might that rules in this moment where the crowd and the owners and the magistrates start to beat Paul and Silas with rods and they beat them with rods and then they throw them into prison and because the, the, the prison the, 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 uh, the guard in the prison is so concerned that they might get out they put them in the inner prison lock their feet in shackles and they're stuck having been beaten. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was out doing the Lord's work and if I just cast out a demon and saw a great victory, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that this is the way that things are going to go, go on here. But this is exactly what happens. They encounter great tribulation and affliction. Now, we know from Paul's litany in 2 Corinthians 11, which I'll just give you a quick version of that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Well, this is one of those three times that he was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, and on and on and on and on. Paul knew what it meant to suffer. He knew what it meant to be in affliction. And here we find Paul and his partner Silas, who's probably thinking, man, Paul, why did you have to cast that demon out? Because now look at where we are and we're hurting and we're stuck and we're in the prison cell. So they should be depressed, right? This is the moment when things aren't going well. This is the time when, you know, this is when they start to reevaluate whether this whole missionary thing was really what God called them to do. This is the time to, to, to mourn and to wail and to be frustrated and to shake their fists. And yet we find what in verse 25? About midnight, Paul and Silas, probably because they couldn't sleep, because I bet they were in tremendous pain, were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They were praying and singing hymns to God. This isn't a one-off, actually, for Paul. This isn't just kind of a a, a one-time moment for him to shine in this kind of situation. If we look back in 2 Corinthians, we see actually twice in verse chapter 6 and once in chapter 7, he says... This is him describing himself. He says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Chapter 7, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. 
Chapter 8, he says this about the Macedonian church. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So again, it's not just about Paul, but we see that actually in the early church, in the Macedonian church. Or then I like to point to this one, Philippians 4.4. You know this verse probably, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. We read it a week or two ago for our New Testament reading. But remember, where is Paul when he's writing the letter to Philippi? He's in a Roman prison cell in Rome, facing a very possible threat of execution. He's not in a position that we would look upon and say, that's an enviable place to be. Of course he's got reason to rejoice. He's in a place where we would say, that's a terrible place to be. And yet he says, and he, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So the testimony of the scriptures, the testimony of the New Testament, the testimony of Paul's life is that in the midst of affliction, in the midst of trouble and trial, that true, that true Christian joy is not only possible, but is a real experience for the people of God. That this is something that we can know and affirm in the midst of our afflictions, in the midst of a fallen and broken world where the realities of sin and the fall are pervasive and poignant in our hearts and in our lives in all kinds of ways. I don't know what those ways are for you, but I know that they're there. And in the midst of that place, this witness arises that about midnight they were singing hymns of praise to God. Now let me say real quick what what this doesn't mean. It's important that we know what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that the suffering is not real or that the afflictions are not real, that the afflictions are somehow um, mitigated through the reality of joy. It doesn't mean that, that, um, that these afflictions and troubles and trials aren't the result of a broken and fallen and sinful world. And it also doesn't mean that in any way as believers that we say, well, we just got to put up with affliction and accept that this is the way things are always going to be. Because we don't. We say in our hope that one day all of these things will be purged from God's world. And so we rightly stand up in protest against these things as they rip into our flesh. So it doesn't mean that these things aren't real. And it doesn't mean that we can't feel the pain of our afflictions and acknowledge that these things are difficult and that they're hard. Another thing that this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that, that somehow... We, we sort of ride above the fray as believers that, that we, we kind of, we start, we, we start to deny the reality of the world that we live in and just put on a plastic happy face and say like, hey, everything's great, everything's fine. I'm not really engaging anymore. I've left reality and I now live in some kind of alternate universe that doesn't really exist. And I'm optimistic every day and every day is great and isn't that wonderful. That's not true Christian joy. Because that fundamentally denies the truth about the world that we live in. And true joy is rooted in the truth. It's rooted in reality. So it doesn't mean that we go into this kind of plasticky world of of cheerful optimism for the rest of our lives. Jesus says, what does he say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There is a genuine and a real mourning for us, and not just for us personally, but for us uh, uh, for the sake of others as well, that we mourn and that we, we, we lament the brokenness and the fallenness of the world, even as you and I experience, experience it in the day-to-day. So my question, if it doesn't mean those things, my question is, what is the reality of joy 
in the midst of affliction? What is the fact of Paul and Silas singing songs of hymns of praise to the Lord at midnight in the midst of this awful situation say about the nature of true joy? So, first question was, is it possible in the midst of affliction and trouble? Biblical answer, yes, it is. And the examples are are many, more than what we've covered here tonight. But the question, next question is, so what does that mean then about the reality of the true nature of joy? And here's, here's where we go. It says that joy is not rooted in my particular day-to-day circumstances. But joy, true Christian joy, is rooted in the reality of who God is and of all that God has done and therefore of all that God will do on behalf of His people and His world as most represented in the cross and the resurrection of His Son Jesus, which we celebrate magnificently and gloriously during Eastertide as the church, but every Sunday as the church. And of the fact that all of this that God is doing and working out in the world is not somehow impersonal and just there, but the fact that in a deep and real way, it's for me. And it's for you. It's not something external to us, but it's, it's deeply personal that God has done and is doing these things. And so that's what we begin to see about the nature of true joy, that it's at the deepest level of truth and being and reality that I'm okay and you're okay. Isn't that somehow deeply what you crave? To know that in the midst of all that's swirling on around you, all that you're facing in the world, all that you're frustrated with, all the sense of futility, that somehow deep down things are okay. And, it, and it's the fact, the resurrection is the proof, is the evidence of the fact that, these, that, that, that this really is the case, that things are okay. They're okay for you, and they're okay for me. God is on the throne. God loves you. God has forgiven you for all the stuff that you wrestle with, that you regret all the painful memories, all the choices that you've made that you wish you could do over again. God has forgiven you. Jesus rose from the dead. A new creation is on the move in the world. The world will be made right one day. And you belong in the heart of it all by virtue of the fact that you have been united to Christ by faith. You know, this is verse 34 of Acts 16. The jailer who almost killed, killed himself, almost committed suicide. What a turn of events for him. Paul says, no, 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 don't hurt yourself. And then he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he, they tell him to repent of his sins and to be baptized. And he's baptized. They believe in the Lord Jesus. And what does it say in verse 34? And he rejoiced. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That these things that Paul and Silas had relayed to him about this joy of singing in the cell at midnight were real and they were meant for him. It's the joy that our deepest needs and our deepest desires have been met in Jesus. And that this is secure and certain regardless of what it is that comes into your life tomorrow or a week from now or what came in a year ago. These things are certain and true. 
You know, sometimes we're tempted to say in the church, you know, joy is not circumstantial. And there's a sense in which that's true. But I want to communicate to you tonight that joy is wildly circumstantial. It's absolutely circumstantial. The question just is, which circumstances are you looking at? The circumstances of who you are in the face of God, the Almighty, the Creator of the universe are so wonderful and they're so great and they're so real that that becomes everything in our lives. Obviously, being beaten with rods, having an injustice perpetrated against you and being shackled with your feet in the inner prison in Philippi in a Roman colony in the first century was not a reason to throw a party. And there may be reasons in your life right now why it's not a reason to throw a party. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that place, Paul and Silas knew that they had been saved by grace. They knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And they knew that he was their king and that there was a reason for great joy. This was their primary context. This is your context. This is my context. These are our circumstances. Whatever else is going on. Now again, it doesn't remove the pain or the injustice of the beating for Paul and Silas in prison. And it also, and I want to be clear about this, this doesn't mean that God is indifferent to or somehow riding above the reality of your day-to-day circumstances. The reality of your life and of my life. The reality of the situations that you're facing. In fact, if you continue on in this chapter as we've read in Acts 16, what happens after they're shackled and they're singing singing uh, hymns of praise? An earthquake. God does something in the midst of their present circumstances in their world. So we should never be the kind of people who just sort of ride above. And God is not the God identifies with us in the midst of these places of affliction and trouble and trial. That's the joy and the beauty of having a Savior who has gone to the cross, who knows the depth of alienation, the depth of the reality of the consequences of sin. He identifies and he cares. But here's the deal that whatever the pain and whatever the loss, whatever the trial In the midst of that, in the middle of that storm, there is a deeper truth and reality that you can celebrate by saying, I'm okay, it's okay, we're okay. God is on the throne. Uh, Horatio Spafford, lawyer in Chicago, 1860s, 1870s. In 1870, Horatio and his wife Anna lost their four-year-old son. They had five children. They lost their four-year-old son to scarlet fever. In 1871, a year later, the Great Fire of Chicago hit, and he, as a lawyer, had invested a lot of his wealth into the real estate, and all of it burned up in flames. About a year and a half or two later, he decided in the midst of the suffering and the affliction and, the pers- and just the, the sense of trouble that his family needed a vacation. And so they decided to go to England to join D.L. Moody, the great evangelist and preacher who was on mission in England. They decided to go as a family to take a holiday and also to to serve and and be a part of D.L. Moody's team. And they go to New York to leave to go to England. And at the last minute, a business need requires that Horatio leave his wife and daughters to go on a ship to England on their own. And he had to go back to Chicago and deal with the business. Nine days later, he gets... A telegram from his wife in England, which reads simply, Saved Alone. And on the journey across the Atlantic, his wife Anna and their four daughters were 
uh, the boat that the French vessel that they were on was struck by an English boat and their boat sank in 12 minutes and 226 people were killed, including every one of his four daughters. He gets away from Chicago, getting the telegram, gets to New York, takes the first ship that he can to cross the sea to England to be with his bereaved wife. And when the captain of his ship says, you know, this is the spot where the French vessel just a month ago sunk, where the sea was three miles deep. It's at that place that he then pens the words of the song, it is well with my soul. These words which read, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin of the joy of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Why could he write those words in the midst of such a tremendous storm and affliction? It's because the gift, the primary circumstance was so much greater than even the greatest loss that you could encounter and face in the world today. The reality of a God who had come into human form to rescue his people and to give us life and to set us free was a reality that he knew that day and looking over the spot of the death of his, of his four daughters, having just buried his son three years before and lost much of his fortune. It's this that, that gets related to us a time and time again in the scriptures like in Matthew 13 when these short little verses about the buying the field with the great treasure. You remember that little parable? It says that this guy, he sold everything that he had. And then if you look, go back and look at Matthew 13, 45 and 46, it says, and in his joy, he went and purchased the field with the great treasure. It's this treasure that Paul is speaking of in Philippians 3 when he says, all of these things that were to my gain, all of these things that I counted as as my identity, as what made me who I was, all of them I count as loss, as nothing for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for this one thing that I've gained, this one treasure that I've been given that's so much better and bigger and more wonderful than anything I could lose in this world. Or the psalmist who says, Whom have I in heaven uh, but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those words would have described Horatio Spafford on that November day in 1873 when he wrote that hymn. Or as we read in Hebrews 10, that they accepted the plundering of their possessions joyously. Because why? Because they knew that they had a better possession and a lasting possession. It's this reality that what God has given to you and given to me and had given to Paul and to Silas. Think about Paul. His life was a train wreck as he persecuted Christ. And then God, of his grace, just turns his life around on its head. Think of that. And it's that joy of all that God has given to us as his people 
that enables them to sing a hymn of praise in the midst of the worst of circumstances. And it's that same gift and joy that, that enables Horatio to write these words in the midst of horrible circumstances. And I want to say and to proclaim to you and to me that it's that same gift and joy that God has given us His Son that enables us to have resurrection joy in the midst of the affliction, in the midst of the trial, whatever it is in your life right now, whatever it is that you're facing right now that you can know and have and enjoy and live into the reality of this joy that God gives to His children as a sheer gift of His grace and His love and His mercy. That's yours. In whatever circumstance that you find yourself in. Let's close with this and say, say that um, ah, there's a lot more to be said, but let me just say this, that when my wife and I fell in love together, that she, um, it was a year of suffering for us. I lost my best friend in a car accident, and uh, it was just a one car accident. And then three months later, and as she and I were just beginning to get to know one another on a deeper level, we had been friends for a couple years, her father was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And he, uh, seven days later, he was in a coma. And uh, as, my, as Mandy and I were talking about this theme of joy and affliction, she, she reminded me this week, she said, you know, Mark, during those three months of because uh, her, her father was in a coma for three months and then he died and he never woke up. She said it was during those three months that I knew joy deeper than perhaps I've ever known it before in my life. There is something about the reality of affliction and trouble that actually begins to disinvest us of all of the 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 um, the latch, the, the link that we have put between our joy and hope and the circumstances of this world, it begins to remind us in a way as it strips those things from us. And I'm not, I, I, there's a lot that could be said. I'm not trying to say that. I just want to say that God in His graciousness can use these things in a way that begins to remind us that this basic and primary narrative of God and His love and His forgiveness and His power which will make all things new and which will make right every wrong is really where we long to be forever. And Mandy knew that in the midst of the biggest, one of the biggest trials of her life. And so I want to suggest to you that in the midst of these storms, that God has a way in His grace of linking us and rooting us more deeply into the rock that is Christ, into the gift of joy that he gives. Because its true nature is that it's rooted in God and it's rooted in the security and the eternality of all that God is doing and will do in the world. That's your joy. That's resurrection joy in the midst of affliction. Thanks be to God. May it be ours. May he have grace and give us the grace to know this joy as his people.